Welcome back, everyone, to another Informant Anthony uh, Let's Talk. I am your host, Anthony Cabasa, and today we have in the studio Mr. Jack Guerrero, who is running for state treasurer. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Anthony. appreciate it. Absolutely. So one of the reasons why we wanted to have you here is because I think that in California, a lot of people, like we were talking about earlier, they're like, hey, who's running for governor? Or who's running for president? Or who's running for Congress? But a lot of people don't know what all these other jobs are all mm -hmm. about. And I think state treasurer is yeah. extremely important uh, you know, job. And so that's why we wanted to have you here today. But before we jump into the nitty gritty and some sure. of the policies Looking that you're running to. on it, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your childhood upbringings, your family values? Perfect. Yeah. Thanks again very much for having me and for this opportunity to introduce myself to your audience as well and to your followers because we've really got an opportunity in 2022 to make a difference in this state. And there is no shortage of issues that need immediate attention and remediation. But like you asked, I'm going to share a little bit about my personal story and kind of work my way uh, to present day. But I was born and raised in the city of uh, Cudahy, which is where I subsequently serve, uh, served as mayor. Uh, my parents immigrated to California from Mexico in the late 70s. They first settled in the Central Valley, uh, picking uh, tomatoes, lettuce, grapes, uh, farm workers, backbreaking work, no doubt. And they later upgraded their professional status to become factory workers in Vernon here in Southern California. And then I was born in the neighboring city of Cudahy. And let me tell you, by the way, Anthony, that the farm work is... Um, very much backbreaking work. That's why I called it an upgrade when my parents then became factory workers in Vernon. But I'll tell you this, um, that kind of work I think created in my father the strictest work ethic I have ever observed in a man. Mm -hmm. And I think that that example is something that was inculcated in my own formation as a young boy and as the person I am today. And I do really credit my father for having uh, that work ethic that I think originated for him when he was working in the fields many years ago. So I was born in uh, the neighboring city of Cudahy, a very troubled city in a very troubled region. For reference, my neighboring city is the city of Bell, and you probably have heard the, the case of Bell, which 10 years ago experienced a corruption scandal that most media across the country categorized as corruption on steroids. This was the town with the city manager paying himself $1.5 million in a town where the average income is $30,000 a year. Holy I mean, think about the disgusting violation of the public trust. I remember hearing about that incident when I was living in New York and really just feeling um, so disappointed and so saddened for my region. And then my own city had a very similar episode of corruption a couple years later, which I'll tell you about. But this is the environment that I was raised in. All of the local schools were absolutely decrepit. My high school, for example, when I was going through school, was ranked in the bottom 10% of public schools, according to California School Accountability Report Card, which comes out of Sacramento every year. And so I knew early on that it was a tough environment. Even as a young boy, surrounded by poverty, gangs, and just awful public schools, I knew early on that I wanted a better life for myself and for my family. And education seemed to be the best medium, at least from my vantage point as a young boy, to escape poverty and bring a better life for my family. And my parents, to their credit, similarly inculcated 
in me the value of education. So very early on, I was drawn to education. Uh, in fact, I'm kind of reminded, just as a side note, about what it would have been like to have been born a thousand years ago when physical fitness was so important to survive, right? You have mm-hmm. to, you know, really take care of yourself. Um, and today in the modern age, I think intellectual faculties are just as important, if, if not more important, in, you know, than physical fitness in terms of being successful in the economy that we have available to us today. And so for me as a young boy who was not physically fit, you know, mm-hmm. and skinny and, uh, you know, and, and just, uh, 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 you know, not, not as uh, uh, prepared on the physical side, I, for me, my intellectual faculties were, you know, what I gravitated towards. Okay. And so when I was seven years old um, or eight years old, I remember this story and I like to share it because it's a true story and it's um, a very endearing kind of story. But when I was in um, third grade, uh, I remember that my teacher held a mock debate in the classroom. This was 1984 during the presidential election cycle between Walter Mondale and Ronald Reagan. And my teacher held a mock debate in the classroom and selected a young lady to represent Walter Mondale. And I was selected to represent Ronald Reagan very providentially. And the young lady stood up in the classroom and pronounced, I support Walter Mondale because my family is poor. And I remember standing up and pronouncing, I support Ronald Reagan because I don't want my family to be poor. (laughs) And I remember uh, that very fondly. And it was kind of my first real experience with the Republican Party, uh, observing Ronald Reagan in his election cycle back in 1984, and then also just living in this country during that era when it felt so great to be American as a young boy. Uh, now, the Cold War could very well have, have had something to do with that because remember, there was you know a, a big a sense of, you know, uh, Soviet Union versus USA. And at least from the vantage point of an eight-year-old, I was rooting for America, and I felt so proud to be American. And I think I, I just had a, a rush of patriotism as a young eight-year-old boy. Um, and, of course, my earliest formation, uh, when I think about how ideologically I've evolved over time, my absolute earliest formation is influenced by the Christian values of my parents. My parents were traditional Catholics, and they raised me and my sister in a, in a Catholic home where we learned to respect our elders and carry ourselves with dignity and self-respect and modesty and charity. And I think all of these values are, uh, at least from my vantage point as an eight-year-old kid as I was growing up, you know, were more consistently aligned with the Republican Party, in my mind. You know, that was that was kind of the way I was directing my own ideological formation. Uh, When I got to high school, I realized that my educational opportunities locally were completely inadequate. Like I said at the outset, my high school was ranked in the bottom 10% of public schools. I remember very limited opportunities to take advanced placement classes. Uh, We had a year-round school uh, when I was going through Bell High School in the neighboring city. And Some of the classes were only offered in one of the tracks, uh, and other classes were offered in other tracks. So it was a a very difficult experience to navigate limited opportunities. So I had no choice when I was 14 years old but to enroll at the local community college by night. 
So I was still a high school student, but as a freshman, I was uh, also concurrently enrolled at the local community college, and I was taking classes in political science and social science. When I was a sophomore in high school, 15 years old, I enrolled at the state university uh, where I was uh, taking mathematics classes and supplementing my otherwise inadequate high school education. I still blame my parents uh, to this day for letting a skinny 15-year-old kid get on the bus late at night, number 260, all the way down Atlantic, before cell phones, in the dark. <laughs> Shame on my parents. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I am very grateful to my parents because they did, uh, like I said, inculcate the value of education. And even during the summers, I remember taking courses at Georgetown University and at Stanford University. And I don't even know how I pulled it off. Like my parents had no knowledge mm -hmm. of these educational opportunities. But uh, as somebody that was constantly looking for ways to better myself, I was very resourceful and I came across opportunities to study at universities. And I found ways to fundraise for them. And and I, I participated in these, these really great uh, experiences. I graduated at the top of my high school class. I was student body president and through hard work, uh, a raw ambition for self-improvement, and yes, the grace of God, and I'm not ashamed to admit that, I was able to escape uh, a decrepit public education in one of the most mismanaged school districts in the United States of America, Los Angeles Unified School District. It's also, by the way, one of the reasons why I champion education reform mm -hmm. and why I think it is the next civil rights issue of our day and why I think Republicans uh, have uh, a good shot at converting a lot of working class families over to our side uh, because we really do have the moral high ground on education reform. But again, through the grace of God and um, all of my work, I was able to uh, move on, and I attended Stanford University in the Bay Area uh, as an economics uh, major. I uh, also spent a year abroad at Oxford University in the United Kingdom, and then I went to Harvard Business School where I got my MBA with a focus on finance. Uh, when I was at Stanford, um, economics was the field that I gravitated towards, uh, and I spent a good year abroad uh, as well studying the history of economic thought. This was my foray into the classical economists like Adam Smith and David Hume and David Ricardo or the more modern classicists like Frederick von Hayek and Milton Friedman, both Nobel laureates who appreciated the free market and uh, understood the pernicious consequences of government meddling in the private sector, not just from a philosophical perspective, but also from an empirical uh, perspective. In other words, when we see the data uh, we can we can determine very easily and very credibly that uh, historically government meddling in the private sector actually undermines the potential for optimizing or maximizing gross domestic product for the economy. And so a lot of that evidence was very clear to me as I was growing up in the field of economics. And I think that was kind of the trifecta. So if you, as you see my evolution ideologically, you know, it begins with conservative, traditional family values. Mm -hmm. And then it evolves uh, to include patriotism as a young boy under the presidency of Ronald Reagan. And then as I uh, uh, got into university and studied economics and public policy, it then became clear to me that uh, a more conservative uh, outlook on public policy was the most beneficial for constituents and for this country. And so that was kind of my ideological formation. I then uh, ensued on a 20-plus year career in finance and economics at the highest levels of corporate organizations. I worked for companies 
like the American Express Company, KPMG, one of the large international accounting firms, Ernst & Young, Credit Suisse Group, uh, where I spent a couple of years in Zurich, Switzerland, uh, and learned to speak Schweizerdeutsch, and so maybe we can practice a little bit in German if you want uh, as well. <laughs> uh, but I, I really had just a wonderful professional experience. When I went to Harvard, I spent uh, some time um, uh, working for uh, the United States Department of the Treasury under President George W. Bush, uh, and uh, even created a, uh, a work uh, field study project with uh, a Harvard professor that was heavily focused on the balance scorecard concept, which a lot of corporate organizations use. Uh, I also studied under uh, Nobel laureate Robert uh, Merton, uh, who uh, was one of the founders of the Black-Scholes uh, options model valuation methods. And so for me, it was a delightful experience uh, to um, study at Harvard and to form the relationships that I did. Uh, and I worked in uh, the presidential administration, and then I uh, spent um, a number of years in the corporate sector in New York and London, back to New York City. And then right around 2012 or so, I decided that I wanted to be back home in Los Angeles. Like most Mexican kids, I can't be away from my parents for too long. You know, my grandparents. Or their food. Or their food, yes, exactly. <laughs> Although New York City has pretty good Mexican food. But I was uh, getting very anxious about, uh, you know, being closer to my family, my grandparents who were getting older. I have nephews and nieces that, you know, barely recognized me. So I wanted to be back in Los Angeles. So I finally worked my way back. And let me tell you, shortly after my relocation, within a couple months, there was a corruption scandal in my city. I was passing through the family home. My father still has uh, the home in Cudahy. And I thought, well, uh, let me live at home for a few months until I figure out what cool hit part of the West Side I would move to, a place like Santa Monica or Marina del Rey or someplace like that. And then within a couple of months, there was a scandal, very similar to the case of Bell that I mentioned earlier. The dollar signs were a little bit smaller in my city's case, but let me tell you, the conduct was no less egregious. Um, in fact, it was made for television kind of stuff. There was a council member who had barricaded himself and the FBI got involved and there were uh, instances of bribery and uh, just the most um, uh, awful revelations of mismanagement in my city. Mm -hmm. uh, it also, uh, the ensuing FBI reports also revealed all kinds of uh, management, uh, mismanagement in the city and, and just a very gritty uh, affair. And uh, I remember resolving at the time that I would find a good candidate for city council to support and that I would not leave the city of Cudahy until I uh, could help somebody that was competent and decent and ethically disposed to serve my city before I moved on with my private life. And let me tell you, I looked and, and looked and waited for a good candidate. And when really nobody halfway decent was stepping forward, I decided that it was maybe the right time for me to step up to the plate and represent my constituents. I had to pray about it because it's not an easy decision to get involved in politics, especially if you have a life in the corporate sector or you know, in the yeah. private sector or you have family commitments. It's very, very difficult really to get into politics if you have a, a, a life outside of politics already. And unless you're corrupt, I like to say this, if you're <laughs> corrupt, getting involved in politics can be very lucrative, very lucrative. Yeah. But for somebody who's honest like myself, Getting involved in politics comes with a significant time commitment, right? You forego opportunities in the private sector that, you know, otherwise would have been available to you. And, and so I had to really pray about it, you know, whether this was something I wanted to really commit to. And I knew that 
I wanted to help my constituents. I mean, this was the town that saw me born and raised. And my, you know, my family was still connected to the city. And I really saw a gap in leadership in my city. And I, you know, I'm a certified public accountant. I know finance. I thought, at least from a finance perspective, I can be helpful to my city. And so I decided to run for city council. I was elected overwhelmingly with the support of the people and immediately appointed mayor by my colleagues unanimously. And let me tell you, it was like playing SimCity in real life, if you remember that old computer game. <laughs> I it, love that game. I play it all the time. <laughs> it, was, it was like playing in real life. I mean, it became a laboratory of uh, even experimentation, thinking outside the box and trying to really rebuild a city from scratch. I mean, we revised the management of the city from top to bottom. We uh, terminated the relationship with the city manager, with the city finance director, with the community services director, and we really rebuilt a city from scratch. And I was a brand new mayor. Most mayors, by the way, or I should say most city council members, usually take at least a full term before they start to understand their role and before they start to take on a, a more activist uh, disposition. But in my case, it had to start from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things I did was initiate a forensic examination of my city's accounts. As a certified public accountant, I knew what to look for, and I conducted my own investigation of the city. And the things I was uncovering were just remarkable. I mean, just the, uh, uh, the neglect of the city and the poor controls. I had no choice but to go to the state controller and ask for assistance. And I really demanded a forensic examination of my city. And I submitted a 10-page summary of my own findings. Really, I handed on a silver platter all of the findings that I came across myself in my capacity as, as a mayor investigating my own city. And when the controller ignored my request, I went to the Los Angeles Times and I presented the LA Times with my summary of findings. They published an article about my, my effort. And it's one of the few articles that LA Times wrote favorably about a Republican elected official to this day. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, after the article was published, uh, the controller finally came knocking on the door and delivered for me the forensic examination that I was requesting. And that was important because I was about to unleash the greatest government reform measures in my city's history, and I needed independent corroboration to justify my actions because they were not going to be pretty, and a lot of stakeholders were going to be uh, a little bit uh, disappointed with the status quo coming, crashing down. And so that was one of the things I'm very proud of from my early mayorship. The other thing I like to talk about is uh, what I did for the public schools. There was a failure factory public school in my city that was failing the kids. Mm -hmm. About 80% of them couldn't read or write or perform basic arithmetic at grade level. And if you follow the standards, they're already very low to begin with. And so for me, this was an example of a civil rights injustice. And when a lot of the parents were starting to complain and starting to get involved, uh, I had to really decide how I was going to help them. And the political class in the environment in, in the area basically told me, you know, Jack, you are not a school board member. You need to stay away from the schools. Uh, you know, really hands off the schools, Jack. And even though it was not within my formal jurisdiction, Anthony, to get involved in the schools, it was certainly within my moral obligation to get involved in the schools. And so I did the unthinkable. I held public hearings on the quality of education in my local city council chamber within the auspices of a city council proceeding replete with minutes and video and podium and people testifying. And at the end of the process, I indicted the local schools for their failure. 
as a city council member, as a mayor that has no jurisdiction over the public schools. Within a few days, I was summoned to downtown Los Angeles by representatives of Los Angeles Unified School District. We met at the table. We talked about the city's problems. And within a, a few short days after that, the principal of one of the troubled elementary schools was removed, and the rest of the administration followed uh, course in short order. And I'm very proud of that. Uh, oh. And it's a testament as well uh, to the opportunity that we have to push the envelope every once in a while, even if it's outside the formal scope of our authority or our jurisdiction in whatever station in life we find ourselves in. Yeah. If you just push the envelope just a little bit, sometimes you can really accomplish some amazing things. And this school example is uh, a testament to that. Since then, I've championed uh, conservative values up and down uh, from lowering taxes and fees for my working class constituents at every opportunity to uh, reeling in a code enforcement department to respecting private property rights, uh, to balancing the budget. I mean, these really are conservative ideas. Mm -hmm. I may not brand them as such necessarily, ostensibly in a nonpartisan race for city council, but uh, they are absolutely conservative. And I have um, always uh, led my city with those important values uh, in mind. And I have consistently been reelected, by the way, by my constituents with overwhelming approbation on one occasion as the highest vote getter in the recorded history of my city. And that's because I speak to these issues that resonate with ordinary people. My town, by the way, is 98% Hispanic, wow. uh, mostly Spanish speaking, and about 90% Democrat. It's one of the bluest states or uh, bluest cities in the bluest region of the bluest state. And let me tell you, even in that kind of environment, when government goes after the wallet so gallingly the way they did in my city, the people will rebel against that kind of stuff. And I'm very proud to have been an advocate for their interests across these areas. What's up, guys? Anthony Cabasa here. Just want to take a quick pause to first and foremost, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. It really means a lot uh, to us in the production uh, side of things and also myself for all the things that you guys do to continue to support our work. Another great way if you are looking to be able to expand our platform to keep the lights on here in the studio, sort of say, uh, you can become a monthly contributor. If you go to informwithanthony.com, there is a tab there on how to become a Patreon subscriber or a YouTube subscriber uh, for less than a gallon of gas. And gallon of gas is uh, rounding up $10. So for less than $10, you can help support my platform. Another way that you can also help is uh, also on our website. Uh, we have some cool little merch there that we have right before the midterms. We got this, I'm actually wearing it right now. Uh, we have a Vota shirt. This means vote, get out there, get activated. Make sure you vote this upcoming midterms. Your voice matters, get activated, make sure to vote. So again, those are ways that you can right now for you know, less than a gallon of gas or for the t-shirt, you can go on to the website, www.informwithanthony.com. Make that purchase and continue to help us here at the Inform with Anthony studio. So again, thank you so much for your time. See you guys out there. And I so, actually have a question yeah. for you on that. That's, you know, for people to, uh, listening, that's, that's an informational dump right there. You just, you know, like uh, of, of, of data that you just gave us. And, and it's really very inspiring. I had read your memo prior to this. Um, I don't think that your own memo or your own page does you justice for everything you've accomplished, but I'm so, I'm, I'm 
I'm honored to be here, honestly, to, to hear what you have accomplished. And, and I actually kind of wanted to backtrack just a, just a little bit. One of the things that stood out to me was, was how your parents and even yourself, the importance of education. I feel, you know, it to me when when I hear like the the word, you know, like son of immigrants, mm-hmm. to me it's it's fascinating the the amount that we are able to accomplish in such a great country like America as son of immigrants that, you know, like you said maybe your parents didn't have the highest education. My mom, I don't even think she graduated from middle school. And here she is, she's a homeowner, she 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 owns a vehicle. And so that's why to me it it's kind of preposterous when I when I hear people talk to me about how America is so inherently racist, when you can look at the story of an immigrant and be like, this person literally came from nothing, no education, yeah. just hard work instilled values inside of them and, and the faith in God, which to yes. me is the most important Absolutely. aspect of it. And Absolutely. you're able to accomplish so much and here you are. So with that, you know, is it hard? Was it hard for you? I think maybe even back then, I'm sure it's, it's very hard now, but even back then, was it hard to be Hispanic and Republican? Did people look down on you for being too educated, maybe? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, because, you know, there's kind of like that ongoing joke that within the Hispanic community, like, you know, like, hey, dad, I got like a like an A minus. And, like, ah. and what, you think you're like Mr. <laughs> Know-it-all now? You know what I mean? So can you kind of maybe just yeah. touch on that a bit, like how, how it was coming into the political scene? Here yeah. you are, Hispanic Republican. You kind of touched on a little bit of how you were able to reach the voters. Yes. Right? So yes. maybe, like, I'm sure it was out of yeah. the element for them. Yeah. You know, for me, it was very natural over time to gravitate towards the Republican Party, or I should say more precisely to conservative values, because ultimately I'm I'm a conservative. The Republican Party is a, um, you know, it's, a, it's a, a medium for realizing my conservative goals, but I'm a conservative and I gravitate towards the Republican Party because it's the best opportunity we have to realize our conservative ideas and goals. Um, But it was very natural for me to do that over time as a young boy because of my early formation with traditional values, growing up in a Christian household, uh, to the patriotism that was so important to me as a young boy. And again, probably influenced by the presidency of Ronald Reagan and the spirit of Americanism that was uh, so palpable back in the 80s uh, when President Reagan was at the helm. And then when I got to college and started to look at data and analysis and started to study economics, then it became just very obvious uh, to me that the agenda of the left uh, has a lot of pernicious consequences. And I'm afraid that I think a lot of people in communities like ours sometimes um, maybe don't go beyond the surface on some of the issues to f- fully appreciate the ramifications of some of the policy positions of the left. And also, I think we have to think, take into consideration that the media is so biased, especially Spanish language media, I'm afraid, in Los Angeles. And, oh, yeah. and I think that some people are just easily absorbed into the left-wing agenda, sometimes for good intentions, right? I mean, most of the people in working class Hispanic communities really just want uh, an improved economic lot in their life, right? They just want to be able to pay the bills and give their children a better life and, and uh, you know, uh, allow their children to attend decent schools and have enough money to pay for 
food and shelter. I mean, these are like basic things. And, and I think m- most Hispanic Democrats are motivated by these kinds of goals. I don't believe that most Hispanics subscribe to the woke agenda of the left that we see today that is so out of control. I mean, I talked about my city being 98% Hispanic and overwhelmingly Democrat. I know all of my neighbors. In fact, it's so, it's so interesting, just a side note here about living in a Hispanic community. But in, in my town, um, it's very common to see a lot of homes in um, gated communities that have like the tract home, town home, condo style arrangement. And what has evolved from that setup is that all of the neighbors in those little communities know each other. Mm-hmm. I know all of my neighbors. In fact, I sometimes have some neighbors that live a few units down come to my house and knock on the door because, you know, they wanted to know if I have sugar or, you know, some yeah. spices for their for their dinner meal. And, and so that can get a little bit annoying sometimes. Like we get to know each other a little too much. But I contrast that with my life in New York City, for example, where I lived in lower Manhattan in Battery Park. And I never once met my neighbors. I never once met my, I lived in a building for uh, for some time and I, I don't think I ever ran into my neighbors. You know, everybody's just in their own kind of space. Yeah. But in a Hispanic community, you know all of your neighbors and all of their <laughs> problems and all of their issues. And I've become as a mayor, you know, a, a one-stop shop resource for all of their needs. You know, they have questions about, you know, financial aid or city issues or landlord tenant issues or divorce proceedings. I mean, everybody comes to me for questions and, and, <laughs> and answers. Uh, but the point I'm making is that, you know, you, you do get to know your neighbors pretty well in Hispanic community. And let me tell you, I know all of my neighbors and not a single one of them, not one ever signed on to a woke agenda that includes teaching sexuality or transgenderism to five-year-olds. Not a single person in my constituency ever signed on to that ridiculous agenda. And they voted Democrat. And they vote Democrat. They're Democrats. And so in some ways, I kind of think the woke agenda of the left will turn out to be its own worst enemy because it will turn off so many people that never signed on to that corrupt agenda when they became Democrats. But where do you think that there's that disconnect, though? Because we talk about, and I've talked about this plenty, where if you talk to the average Hispanic Latino, they're not for this agenda. But then why do so many continue to vote Democrat? Why, where, where do you think that misconnect is of, of we're raised with conservative values, yeah. we have faith in the creator, and, and we come here to work hard, not for handouts, but then they'll go to the booth and sign, and, and sign their name next to a Democrat, or they'll vote for a Democrat. Why do you think that's happening still? Some of it could be, you know, just family influence. Maybe uh, in the era of John F. Kennedy, for the earliest of the immigrants that came, the earliest waves, you know, maybe they signed on uh, to the Democratic Party because they had a Catholic president that, uh, you know, in John F. Kennedy, and maybe the earliest values they were exposed to from the Democratic Party most resonated with with them based on their understanding of issues. And then just by tradition, they've kind of generationally passed on their allegiance to the Democratic Party. That could be maybe part of it. Another could be that in California, you know, you might recall that back in the 90s, we had Proposition 187, which um, dealt with the illegal immigration issue in California, which was afflicting the economy and the state in many profound ways. But a lot of the debate and the tone of the um, of the uh, discussion, and I recall this as a young, as a young student. Um, you know, was 
very heated, and I think that kind of tone, um, you know, might have encouraged an older generation of Hispanics to gravitate to, towards the Democratic Party, and and maybe just by tradition, again, you know, they've imparted those that allegiance to their children, and and maybe just by extension, a lot of Hispanics have become Democrats, but it is changing, um, and I have to say, even on the immigration issue. I think most Hispanics really have a more balanced view of immigration policy than what the left wing offers with open borders and disorder and humanitarian chaos. Nobody um, that I know in the Hispanic community of my city agrees with the status quo. Even on humanitarian grounds, people are sick of seeing young children being tossed over a fence and abandoned by smugglers involved in the human trafficking trade. It's disgusting to watch, and it's it's abhorrent. And strictly speaking, from a humanitarian perspective, it's uh, uh, a policy that needs to be rejected. The status quo policy needs to be rejected. There has to be some order and some decency uh, to immigration policy. And I think that that's waking up a lot of, a lot of Hispanic voters uh, and I've observed it even in my own city among the most uh, devoted Democrats. You know, they are uh, waking up to the status quo and realizing that, you know, we really need to change our immigration policies. We need to secure the border. We need to prevent these deaths and uh, this uh, neglect of children and stop the human trafficking trade and the drug trade that accompanies it. And I think people understand the stakes. And so that's that's a, a controversial issue for sure that um, I think most Hispanics have a balanced view on in sharp contrast to the politics of the left. Uh, but I'm, I'm speculating at, as to why maybe since the 90s, you know, the Democrats have had such a stronghold on uh, many of our, of our uh, community members. Um, and then the media, of course, is has always been complicit with the Democratic Party in California. And, you know, the most significant news outlets have always promoted the Democratic agenda. And, and I think that that might have had an influence, you know. Like in, local local news sources. Yeah, and local news people sources. People tuning in to Univision, Telemundo. That's right. Just, or Jorge Ramos, the, yeah. you know, uh, uh, left-wing uh, uh, news uh, promoter. Yeah. And and I think that that might, might have been a part of it. Well, his daughter, Paula Ramos, yes. she comes out, yeah. she came out with a book called Latinx, Redefining mm. Latino, you know, voices or whatever. And, and to me, it's like, you know, uh, I don't think Latinos are looking to be redefined. You know, no, nobody wants to be redefined. We just want to be ourselves. We want to stay Latinos. Yeah. But uh, they insist on using that Latinx word. You oh. know, and it's like despite polls, oh, not yes. just of Republicans, but just all Latinos in general, they're like, do you like this word as a gender inclusive? And they're like, no. Absolutely <laughs> not. Yeah. I don't know anybody that likes it other than left-wing politicians including some that sit on the city council where I serve. Uh, but other than that, I don't know anybody else that subscribes to, subscribes to that term. Well, a lot of it see it as like a, like a whitewashing yeah. of, of our, of our culture, you know, yeah. um, because it's, it's like strictly academia or usually when you see it, it's like the Joe Biden's, yeah, you know, like, right. Hey, the Latinx community. And they're like, sis, like, I cringe when this. I hear that term. Yeah. And I think some of it also might have to do with the, with the gender neutral kind of, uh, you know, uh, agenda of the left where they mm -hmm. want to, you know, neutralize anything having to do with gender. And this is kind of another thing they can gravitate to is, is yeah. to undermine the Spanish language, which has gender pronouns and, and make it gender neutral. Yeah. 
So with that, you know, you've given us kind of like a little background history on who you are, how you came up. Thank you, you know, for for talking about the mayoral stuff. That's that's so impressive that in a county, 98 percent of Hispanics and most of them lean Democrat. You were able to just talk about the issues. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's how you were able to attain so much. But talk a little bit about why state treasurer? Why why not Congress? Why not state assembly? Why not governor? You know, you 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 saw the success you had for mayor. Why not LA mayor? Why state treasurer? Yeah. Well, treasurer is a very important role that a lot of voters don't really fully appreciate. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got, as you know, a legislature that is overwhelmingly Democrat. In fact, they have a super majority. So even if we get good conservative state legislators, if they're operating in a minority position with a supermajority of Democrats, they're really quite constrained in their ability to affect policy. Um, However, if you are a constitutional officer, like a state treasurer or a state controller, you can really be an effective check and balance on a California legislature that's out of control. The treasurer position also lends itself very nicely to my own professional skill set because it's linked to uh, finance and economics and nature and scope, which is professionally what I have been able to uh, grow up in professionally and and, and a skill set that has developed from that experience that I think I can offer uh, in public service. And so it's complementary to my skill set, but it's also quite a consequential role for serving as a check and balance on a California legislature run amok. And there's so many issues that the treasurer is responsible for that I think are, are uh, important to raise awareness about. And, and so I gravitated to the treasurer position uh, for those reasons. And some of the topics, for example, that I'm really passionate about uh, has to do with the out-of-control debt that we are bequeathing to our children and our children's children in this state. Of course, this is a problem that afflicts the entire country because right. Congress, through its large guests, has also uh, picked up about $6 trillion of additional debt over the last couple of years, ostensibly to address COVID and to stimulate the economy. But um, in reality, it's a lot of money that was doled out to campaign contributors and favored industries and friends of members of Congress and uh, pork uh, uh, examples of expenditures. And there has been a tremendous disservice to our fellow countrymen, you know, who have to now uh, deal with the effects of out of control debt, including inflation, by the way. Inflation is a direct consequence in many ways of the uh, out of control debt that uh, Congress has picked up. And let me just detour for 30 seconds here on how inflation works. Uh, Basically, when Congress spends more money than it has, it has to go to the United States Department of the Treasury to issue government bonds, treasury bonds, which uh, members of the investor community will will purchase and then shore up the gap so that Congress can spend the money that it didn't have. So that's the way it's supposed to work. But we also have an independent agency, ostensibly independent, called the Federal Reserve, which decides to meddle in this kind of scheme to shore up these funds. And um, what we have observed over the last two years is the Federal Reserve almost lockstep has purchased these government bonds. 
Uh, and in one month alone, last March, it gobbled up about $500 billion in government bonds, in treasury bonds. And so what you're observing is almost a lockstep corroborating behavior where the Federal Reserve is basically uh, paying for this gap that Congress uh, needs to fill to you know, dole out all of its largesse. And how does the Federal Reserve pay for anything? I mean, it basically prints the money. That's how the Federal Reserve pays for anything. And when you have an infusion in the money supply that outpaces the natural growth of the economy, you have the classic recipe for inflation. About 18 months ago, I gave a speech on this very topic, and I predicted that in this second half of the fiscal year, of the calendar year, excuse me, we would experience the greatest inflation we've observed in 40 years. And I was pretty much spot on with my projection because I saw the signs early on, especially after the America Rescue Plan, uh, that we were going to uh, uh, get the Federal Reserve Board involved uh, and that uh, we were going to infuse money supply uh, you know, at a pace that significantly is uh, uh, in excess of the uh, natural growth of the economy. So that's the predicament we find ourselves in. Of course, uh, the behavior of Congress is a bad example for legislators in the state of California, but they are also mismanaging our state's affairs as it relates to finance. We've got debt in California on and off balance sheet combined at a staggering $1.5 trillion. Uh, now, if you add in the state's share of the federal debt, the $6 trillion and all of the accumulated federal debt, we end up with a debt-to-gross domestic product ratio of about 150%. Now, that means that when we add all of this debt, it is greater than the size of the economy in the state of California. We've got 150% of the size of the economy in debt. Uh, this is a, an unsustainable proposition. We saw examples of um, this falling apart in Europe when peripheral Eurozone countries like Greece and Portugal experienced debt-to-GDP ratios that hovered around this ratio, and they were facing austerity measures and near collapse because of uncontrollable debt that they had on their books. Uh, in the state of California's case, we have what I call on-balance sheet and, on and off-balance sheet. On-balance sheet is what is um, basically all of the, the government bonds that are outstanding. I mean, this is non-controversial um, uh, stuff as it relates to the uh, valuation of this um, of this debt. But we also have something called off-balance sheet, which is what the government likes to hide. And this is all of the unfunded pension liabilities, promised health care, things that the government doesn't like to talk about. But it is debt because it is a liability for the state. These are promises that the state has made, uh, which it needs to fulfill. And it doesn't have the money or the resources to pay for it. And so this becomes a liability. Now, we don't have to pay it all tomorrow, but this liability continues to accrue, and it's getting worse and worse every single day. And the, li the uh, liabilities related to the pension funds alone is about $1 trillion of that $1.5 trillion total debt that I talked about. And so one of the things I'm interested in as treasurer is to raise awareness about this uncontrollable debt because it's not healthy for our economy, and it's going to present significant problems for our children and our children's children. Um, I also want to talk about um, the pension crisis that we have, this $1 trillion in unfunded liabilities. This is the difference between the future stream of pension obligations, promises that we have made to retirees, and the present value of the assets, of the pension fund assets. That stands at a staggering $1 trillion according 
to Stanford University economists. According to Cowper's board, uh, where the treasurer sits on, on, the, on that board, um, it's closer to about $300 billion, the unfunded liability. But even if you disagree with the Stanford economists uh, and you want to take maybe a middle position, that's still about $700 billion in unfunded liabilities. Yeah. And for comparison, the size of the budget in the state of California hovers around $300 billion this year. So that means that if you accept the figure of the Stanford University economists, we would have to shut down government tomorrow. We'd have to just like close down government for the next four years and continue to tax you several times over just to recover from this gap. Wow. So you can see it's not a sustainable model. And at some point, uh, we're not going to be able to fulfill these promises. So if we do absolutely nothing uh, and preserve the status quo, uh, the system as we know it will collapse. And we're going to end up with cities declaring bankruptcy up and down the state and federal bankruptcy courts determining how much of the benefit to curtail for retirees. Nobody benefits from that, from that situation. Um, not the retiree, not the taxpayer. Um, and I think it, it's an issue that needs to be addressed. Most politicians don't address, address this issue because they're absolutely scared to death of the public sector union bosses. And so they prefer to kick the can down the road, the proverbial, you know, can down the road. And most politicians, of course, in California are interested in a two-year horizon or a four-year horizon until, until they get reelected. And that's irresponsible behavior. As treasurer, uh, sitting on the boards of these public pension funds, CalPERS, CalSTRS, University of California Pension Fund, I have an opportunity to raise awareness about the true valuation of this unfunded liability to change the discount rate, which is the basis for that valuation. And by doing that, by the way, we trigger automatically the local agencies that are participating in CalPERS to contribute more substantially to shore up the fund. I think that's important to the benefit of retirees if we shore up the funds a little bit more than what we've been contributing. But it's also going to require reform of the system as a whole. Right. And, and I've got a, a, a very thoughtful way of resolving it uh, that includes preserving uh, the pension promises to existing retirees and then for new entrants into the public sector requiring that they transition from a defined benefit plan to a defined contribution plan. And then for those employees that are in the middle that are current employees in the system, uh, whatever they have earned to date in the way of deferred compensation, that really should be honored to the extent economically feasible. But whatever has not yet been earned, that is prospective in nature, that needs to be renegotiated. And I favor a bipartisan approach where all stakeholders come to the table and we negotiate um, a perhaps a migration to a defined contribution plan for the balance of the unearned deferred compensation. Uh, but these are conversations that need to be had. Right. And I'm just throwing them out as starting points in a conversation. But right now we have a situation where no politician wants to even touch it. It's just bad politics to touch it. But I'll tell you, Anthony, I'm not afraid of the public sector union bosses. I work for the people, and I think we owe it to the people, and even, dare I say, to the public sector worker to remediate a program that is on a collision course with collapse. And I think that that's the responsible thing to do as an elected official. So those are some of the issues that I really care about. One other thing I want to mention is uh, the state's credit rating. 
you know, that before, we have. Before oh, we sure. get into that, yeah, just please. real quickly, uh, you touch on something that, you know, you're talking about a lot of this stuff. I'll be very honest with you, even though my name online is Inform with Anthony, it's really you're here to inform me today because uh, and, and everyone here listening, because a lot of people don't know about this. And this is why it's so important to have you on so that people are educated and like, hey, all these races matter. Because, again, to the average voter, they're not looking at treasurer. A lot yeah, of people right. that I talk to, they don't even know that they can vote in judges. They're like, wait, wow. uh, judges? I thought they just applied for the job. And I'm like, no, you got you, they're appointed judges. So if you're unhappy with you know the criminal system or who the judges are or the sentencing, whatever it is, you know, obviously there are some DAs that are just dismiss whatever the judge has to say. But my question to you is, if, if California is in peril, which I also believe that I, obviously whenever Newsom speaks, I don't believe a word he says, but he's out here touting that, oh, you know, as governor, I have a 300, a $300 billion surplus and we're so rich and we're so well off that I'm, we're actually going to start sending you money. And of course, lo and behold, it's happening weeks before a very important election and it's yeah. the election for governor. So here he is on TV saying, we have a surplus of 300 billion. We got so much money. We're doing great. There's there's no problems anywhere. And as a matter of fact, we're doing so well. Here's, you know, more of your money. You don't, you don't have to know that it's your money. But here's some here's some money from the government. So are we really in a surplus? Or what is he really doing by, by handing this money out? What does that mean? Is that just overtaxation? What, what's happening there with that? It's really Mickey Mouse math. So the governor has touted a $100 billion surplus out of a $300 billion total budget. Now, what he's referring to when he says surplus is the difference between his original estimate for revenue coming into the state's coffers and his latest estimate. So what it really boils down to is that he is mathematically incompetent and his estimate was way off. By to the tune of $100 billion. That's what the surplus means when he talks about it. A more appropriate comparison is to look at the revenue that's coming into the state this fiscal year compared to the revenue that came into the state the last fiscal year. That difference is closer to $50 billion. So yes, we are receiving $50 billion more than we did last year. But the responsible thing to do when you get any kind of surplus is to put it in a reserve, or use it to pay down your debt. Those would be responsible things that a household uh, budget would look like if you suddenly ended up with more cash in your family budget. You know, you would use that responsibly to pay down your debt, your credit cards, uh, pay that down, or use it as, as a reserve, you know, for a, a rainy day. But instead, what the governor is doing is whatever surplus, you know, we, we had, it has completely evaporated because all of it, 100%, has been earmarked for expenditure. So not a single penny of it is really going into a reserve. It's, it's basically earmarked for expenditure. And so it's an evaporating concept. Uh, number one, it was miscalculated. And number two, it's no longer, it's no longer a surplus that will uh, be allocated for reserve purposes or for uh, paying down debt. And that's very, very regrettable. And of course, like you said, um, we're... Uh, getting a series of checks to people that qualify weeks before the election. It reminds me a little bit of uh, the America Rescue Plan from Congress last year, which also involved the distribution of checks. Uh, in that case, it was approximately $1,500 or so per family. But did you know that in the case of the America Rescue Plan, 
Uh, most Americans were getting checks of about $1,400 or $1,500, but it was costing the average American $6,000 for that program. So somewhere along the line, somebody's getting kind of screwed here, right? And Us. so, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you get your check for $1,500, but you know what? It's costing you $6,000 in additional debt per person. And so it's a scam. It's basically a scam. And so I think the same thing is happening in California, unfortunately. And uh, I kind of view it in some ways, just like a lot of the welfare programs in the state, is kind of a way for Democrats to curry votes, right? They drop money into certain populations that have reliably voted Democrat. And it's a way of almost bribing them for a vote, right? We're going to throw welfare at you, um, even though the welfare in the end kind of undermines the long-term potential for certain working families to escape poverty. There are more efficient ways that we can allocate assistance to a lot of people that, um, you know, that, that are in, in troubled areas. Um, and by the way, I do support a, a social safety net for, you know, those cases where uh, individuals are not in a position to help themselves, like those that are disabled or those that are elderly, you know, uh, or those that who are really, really sick. I think there are ways that, you know, we as a society can, can be helpful with social uh, safety nets. But I also think that there's a lot of abuse in the way that welfare is doled out. And we do a, an incredible disservice uh, to the most neediest uh, working class members of our society that uh, through the right incentives, you know, can escape poverty and get the educational opportunities that they need and, and the skill sets uh, that they should have developed for themselves. Uh, but now, I, yeah. just real quickly, is that something that you as state treasurer would be able to kind of maybe start investigating? Because we, we, you know, we've, you just mentioned something that I've had people come to me like sort of kind of like as whistleblowers where they say like, hey, man, you know, like we're basically running a scam with these welfare systems. Like yeah. there's there's people saying they're not married, but we're not checking. There's people claiming more kids than they have. There's people stating that they haven't gone back to work, but they are. Or they're working for cash money to keep climbing with unemployment. Is that something that a state treasurer, you can maybe like as the auditor, mm -hmm. or, you know, or, hey, we need to start doing that. Because one of the biggest ones uh, that, that's a big problem here in Los Angeles, uh, aside from like the welfare, is that you have these uh, non-government organizations that are supposed to be put up to help the homeless people. Yeah. And these people, you know, there's one organization that basically has over 400 employees to tackle homelessness, and they've got a board and everything. These are people appointed by corrupt, you know, city board members, et cetera. And these people are getting paid over $100,000 a year yeah. to fix homelessness. And the reports keep coming out every year. Oh, you know, LA City homelessness has grown 15% in the last year. But it's like, but wait a minute, don't we have 400 employees, you know, the top 100 getting paid over 100,000? What could, is that something that you could look into? What, 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 what would that require? Interesting point. By the way, in Los Angeles case, there was an article in LA Times not too long ago that some of these homeless uh, housing development projects were costing uh, almost a million dollars per unit. I mean, you can buy a home in a nice area, uh, uh, you know, for, for less than these homeless, you know, studios. So where is the money going? I mean, it's completely mismanaged, as you can tell from uh, these figures. There's no reason why uh, developing a, a housing structure with, uh, uh, you know, small uh, square footage for uh, housing the homeless should cost 
close to a million dollars. That's ridiculous. Some, I, I, somebody's benefiting from those scams. I was just about to say, I almost feel, and I, you know, uh, pardon my source, but I saw this in The Sopranos, but where basically people are elected with the help of these unions saying, if you are elected, you need to make sure that these contracts go to us because we're supporting you. And I mean, come on now, a million dollars a unit? So it's like, is it really costing that much to this construction company or is this just a personal favor from a friend to a friend? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it, I don't know. I mean, it raises all, all kinds of questions. There's no yeah. doubt about it. And I, I'll tell you, I, I was skeptical of government before I got involved in politics. Now that I've been a city council member and a mayor, I'm even more skeptical of government. <laughs> I'll tell you, because the way it works is you get a lot of vendors and developers and people that do business with cities and other government agencies, and they hover around like vultures. Uh, and they know how to work with a lot of politicians to curry favor and get really nice contracts. And I'm speaking in general here about the way this operates in, right. you know, uh, political environments. And and I um, I'm really repulsed by that. I'm really repulsed by that. But it no doubt adds a premium to the cost of doing business. Mm -hmm. And that's why government is so inefficient in um, the way that it manages a lot of programs that make use of government funds and taxpayer funds. Now, the state treasurer doesn't quite have the, the auditor authority that the controller does, although we would both make great partners, by the way. The, the treasurer function is a little bit different. The treasurer is responsible for managing the state's assets and cash uh, before it gets dispersed. So cash comes in to the state's coffers through tax revenue, but it doesn't get spent lockstep immediately as we receive it, right? Money doesn't come in and, and then immediately go out in the same moment. Um, what happens is money comes in, it's fungible. Um, it needs to be stored and managed before it gets dispersed. And then it's happening con continuously, right? Money's coming in and money's going out. But while it's in, in, in uh, possession of the state, it has to be managed. It doesn't get stored between the mattresses. It, got, it has to be managed and and that's where the treasurer takes on the responsibility. Anything having to do with managing the state's assets, the cash, or anything having to do with debt, like issuing bonds uh, or managing programs that exist to uh, help even public-private partnerships raise funds through low-interest financing or bond issuance, the treasurer is kind of responsible for that. But that's a lot of money and resources that fall within the purview of the treasurer. And let me tell you, one of the things I intend to do as treasurer is testify on a regular basis at committee hearings in the Assembly and in the Senate until those legislators are sick and tired of seeing my face because I'm going to expose for them the long-term economic consequences of their decisions. So I do have a bully pulpit. I have a podium where I can expose mismanagement when it happens. Now, as far as anything within the formal purview of the treasurer is concerned, if I observe that anything the legislators do is illegal, unconstitutional, immoral, unethical, and it involves any of the funds that are managed by the state treasurer, you better believe I can be a thorn on the side of the legislature by doing things like withholding the bond issuance. Um, I mean, there are things I could do to be to be a bit of a uh, of a thorn on the side. Now, the inevitable consequence of that is that I would be sued by the legislators, le legislature, and the uh, dispute would be resolved in probably the California Supreme Court. You know, right. so it, it would be there would be some resolution. But the point is that there is precedent 
historically for a lot of the state constitutional positions to serve as a thorn or more appropriately a check and balance really on the California legislature, but also just in my capacity as a state constitutional officer with a podium where people actually listen to what I have to say, you know, I think having somebody who's completely independent from the majority party can be of great service to uh, our fellow citizens because they can really serve as a as a check and balance on a legislature that's out of control. So those are things that I'm going to do. And if I uncover anything, of course, you know, I'm going to make as, as much noise and as much uh, effort to expose it as possible. And if it falls within the purview of my position, uh, I will use my authority to not release funds or to stall the issuance of bonds, et cetera, until we can get the right uh, attention on some of these issues. One of the last questions, um, as we start wrapping it up here, it, the how for you, you mentioned something that just, it just dawned on me as, as you were talking about it, about how you're able to kind of uh, make the argument that what is being proposed or what's been passed through the legislature is unconstitutional. I know that one of the things you and I talked about this earlier was, you know, that Hispanics don't agree with the, the transgender, specifically oh, yeah. with the children. I know that Newsom and state legislators are fighting for California to allocate taxpayer money to make California a sanctuary state for for anyone wishing to come get transgender yeah. or, or gender affirming care, basically, uh, for for minors. Now, if that legislature is passed up and they say like, hey, beginning today, we're going to allocate this much tax, California taxpayer money or federal money, whatever it is, uh, we need you to allocate those sources so that it goes to that. But if it's if you deem it unconstitutional, like, hey, wait a minute, taxpayer money should never be used for something. This is a personal decision. This is a family thing. What just off the top of my head, I'm, I'm not expecting you to have the direct answer, but I would assume something like that would maybe be conflicting, you know, where. Well, it needs to be raised uh, as an issue for the voters to uh, understand, you know, how, how serious the legislature is. Uh, is pursuing this, uh, potentially even in an unconstitutional way. Uh, again, I would use the authority or the uh, podium that the treasurer has to raise awareness about this and to argue against this kind of conduct at every opportunity. Uh, but um, but the, I, I would think the controller, uh, as the person who holds the checkbook, would, would have a more direct influence over the disbursement of funds. But if anything involves bond issuance, uh, that's where, you know, I would have the authority as a treasurer to get involved with those kinds of things. But again, nothing's going to stop me from meddling in issues that um, need to be called out. As mayor, I did that when I talked about what I did for the schools, right? right? I mean, I had nothing to do with the schools. I was not a school board member. I had zero jurisdiction over the schools. But that did not stop me from taking that on uh, in defense of my constituents and having city council proceedings dedicated to the issue of quality education. And I think similarly, I want to bring the same discipline to Sacramento. And because I'm a constitutional officer with a podium, you know, I'm going to use that um, beyond the scope of the treasurer's responsibility to really expose the legislature for the corruption that they pursue in the course of their ordinary work. And they're going to have to shut me down uh, in the most uh, impractical ways you know, if they uh, if they don't want to hear from me, but I, I tell you, I'm going to really uh, be an activist treasurer, and you better believe it. I'm I'm going to fight for the people in ways that uh, the legislature is unaccustomed to observing from a, a state constitutional officer. 
Now, uh, yeah, and I, and I think that's great. Uh, you talked about, you know, we kind of delved into some of the policies. You were talking about, like, the debt. You were talking about the pension crisis, the operations of the Treasury Office. And then the last one you wanted to talk about was the credit rating of the state. So you were about to jump into that before oh, I... Oh, sure, yeah, no worries. We were up, up, and then after that, we'll kind of uh, wrap it sure. up. Sure, yeah. Well, very quickly, just on the credit rating, we have one of the worst credit ratings in the United States of America. Only six states have a worse credit rating than we do, uh, including the state of Illinois, which is just about to fall apart for a lot of the same trajectory of mismanagement that is afflicting the state of California. Things like you know not balancing your budget properly or having excessive debt, uh, a lot of liabilities, et cetera. And the consequence of having a relatively unattractive credit rating is that we have to pay more interest and more transaction costs whenever we issue government debt. And who benefits from that? Wall Street banks in New York City benefit from that to the detriment of the California taxpayer. And I think that that's very unethical. And it's uh, something that uh, is costing us significantly. We probably spend close to $10 billion in interest payments alone. Uh, and that continues to grow. For every dollar that we raise in debt, we have to pay $2 over the course of 30 years. So debt is not free money. And the worse our credit rating is, the more interest and the more transaction costs that we have to pay. And that's very, very important. And nobody talks about it. Nobody, it's not a sexy topic, I guess, yeah. for politicians to talk about. Uh, but it's important to talk about it. And I think it, uh, uh, it's something that, that I raise all the time. And my opponent uh, likes to tout that, well, we have investment grade credit rating. That may be true, technically speaking, but the key question is how does the credit rating compare to all other states? Because essentially we're competing for the same pool of investors to shore up the gap in our funding. And if we have a relatively unattractive credit rating, and again, only six states have a worse credit rating than we do, then it means we're going to pay the greatest interest rates uh, and the most significant transaction costs. And we really need to raise a lot of awareness about that. And I'm, I'm going to uh, do everything in my power to renegotiate those contracts with Wall Street banks, by the way, because I don't work for the Wall Street banks. I work for the people. Uh, and then I want to raise awareness about this out-of-control debt that is really afflicting uh, the state. And, and I think people need to know about that. Yeah, absolutely. So with with that, um, I'm going to go ahead and ask you, elevator pitch. Why should people vote for you over, say, your opponent for state treasurer? You know, um, the time really has come for an independent watchdog who is free of the single-party political apparatus in Sacramento to serve as a check and balance on a legislature that is out of control. And to Democrats, I would say, look— if you have your legislative priorities on the left and you're going to vote for your state legislators on the left, you know, your policy priorities will be represented in the legislature. But at least have somebody who's independent in a position like state treasurer that can really ensure in some ways that your legislative priorities as it relates to spending is being managed efficiently and responsibly. At least you should be demanding that, that kind of check and balance. Uh, and again, from my experience, both in the public sector and in the private sector, I think I really bring a unique combination of skill sets. Uh, and my motivation, most importantly, is based on ethical disposition. I always tell people uh, that um, the, the attributes you should look for in a politician are, number one, are they ethical? Number two, are they competent? You know, it's not good enough to just have an ethical disposition. You need to know what you're 
what you're talking about. Uh, and, you know, are you fighting for the right side of the issues? Are you conservative in your, in your, uh, in your, your policy prescriptions? And I think that I offer that combination of attributes. And this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity that we as Republicans have going into 2022 general election cycle. All of the signs are pointing to historically non-Republican demographics coming over to our side. Wall Street Journal, for example, reported that Hispanics are positioned 37% to vote Republican versus 37% for Democrats in the congressional midterms. First time ever that Wall Street Journal is reporting a balanced demographic. And in states like Texas and Arizona, the Hispanic advantage with Democrats has been cut in half. Mm -hmm. African Americans used to support Joe Biden at 75%. Now that's at 50%. Asian Americans, only a third believe that Joe Biden should be president of the United States again. So I think we've got an interesting opportunity in this election cycle. And then when you look at the issues, you know, from the woke agenda to the neglect of public safety to the decrepit public education that is afflicting sta the state up and down to, you know, the e exorbitant uh, inflation uh, to our economic situation that is the responsibility of the Democrats and they have nobody to blame but themselves. I think you're seeing really the uh, uh, perfect storm for Republicans to have a good showing and perhaps for us to bridge the gap uh, that we've historically experienced with the Democrats. And for all of these reasons, I think having a compelling candidate, you know, that is that is good on, on the competency, on the ethical disposition, and on the uh, policy prescriptions can be uh, absolutely uh, favorable to the long-term prospects for this state. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for your time. Thank you for being here. Where can people find you if they want to get involved with your campaign, if they want to watch more of your stuff or just follow your campaign trail? And how can people help you between now and Election Day to get elected? Thanks very much. The uh, website uh, where you can get a little more information is uh, jackfortreasurer.com. That's J-A-C-K, the digit for treasurer.com. I'm also on uh, Twitter, um, uh, Guerrero underscore CPA. You can find me on uh, Facebook and uh, uh, Instagram if you Google or if you just type in uh, uh, Guerrero for Treasure, you should see my page pop up. I'm on YouTube as well, similarly, Guerrero for Treasure. Uh, and uh, the ways that people can be helpful is by spreading the word the message with their neighbors, with their families about voting differently this time around. Yeah. You know, enough of the status quo. We need to vote differently this time around. And I think getting that message out will be very helpful to the campaign. Awesome. This is what I tell everyone all the time. Please, thank you so much for uh, joining us here today. Thank you, Jack, for being here. But nothing changes unless you share, share, share. My, you know, word of mouth. You, I tell everyone all the time, you are the direct ambassador of truth for everyone in your close friends and family that either follow you on social media. These conversations need to be had and they need to be heard. And so by you sharing, you need to go on Facebook, share this, you know, whether it's a link on YouTube, whatever it is, share, share, share. More and more people are tuning in to independent podcasts 
free thinkers than they are tuning in to CNN or, or the mainstream media, the corporate media, because they all have an agenda like we talked about earlier. Univision, Telemundo, those are people are tuning out of those. My mom, she was an avid Univision watcher. She'd be sitting down, come home from work, sit down, we'll be watching that. And now she's tuned. Now all she does is carry around her headphones and she tunes into YouTube videos all day by independent Spanish. <laughs> That's great. You know, so please guys, if, if you guys haven't already, subscribe. Uh, you know, give it a five star, give it a review. All these things matter in the culture war. It matters in the information war. But again, thank you so much, Mr. Jaguero, for being here. We wish you all the best in your campaign. And I'm going to have to bring you back because you are a walking, walking encyclopedia, no, sir. So, so we thank need you. to have you back. But again, thank you so much for your time. And thanks for everyone that tuned in.